thank you, David, for your service on on Guidestone's board. They couldn't have a better person serving there. And um, I tell you, it is wonderful. I am incredibly blessed to be able to stand here again today and to preach at least one more time. And I'll give you an update at the end of the uh, service. But uh, right now, I want to encourage you, if you would, get your Bibles. And let's look to the, the book of Acts in chapter 20. We're going to be in chapter 20 and 21 today. And we're continuing in our study through this great book called We Shall Prevail. Now, some years ago, Sports Illustrated carried an article uh, about the naming of the then new uh, Iowa State football stadium. It's uh, in Ames, Iowa. And the article said this, Cinnamon is running high at Iowa State to name the new football stadium for an ex-football player and not as ordinarily happens after the heftiest contributor. The player, Jack Trice by name, was no All-American. Except for one game, the only game he ever played for the Cyclones, he was not even a starter. That was 50 years ago. In the noiseless footsteps of time since then, memory of Trice on the Ames campus has all but vanquished. The article continues. One day last year, English teacher Alan Beals became curious about a plaque that was attached to the old state gym. Under a coat of dust and bird droppings was a tribute to Trice. Beals assigned some some, uh, students to find out why. Uh, Excuse me. Jack Trice, they learned, was a sophomore in 1923. He was married, majored in animal husbandry, and had an average of 90 and played football. He was also black. Because of that, he was kept out of the first two games of the season. But the team and the coaches rallied behind him, and he started against Minnesota at Minneapolis. Ahead, 14 to 10 in the third quarter, Minnesota ran a crossbuck and the Iowa State defensive line crumbled. Trice rushed in to close the gap. He stopped the play, but he fell back on his, on, on, and three charging Minnesota players ran over him. As he was carried from the field, Minnesota fans rose and chanted, We're sorry, Ames, we're sorry. Trice returned to Ames lying on a bed of straw in a Pullman railroad car. He was taken immediately to the college hospital, But two days later, he died of hemorrhaging lungs and internal bleeding. The day Trice was buried, friends found in his pocket pocket, jacket, jacket pocket a note that he had written to himself in the Minnesota hotel on the night before the big game. It was headed, my thoughts just before the first real college game of my life. It read, the honor of my race my family and myself, is at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. My whole body and soul are to be thrown recklessly about the field. Every time the ball is snapped, I will be trying to do more than my part. End quote. As some of you may know, that new stadium was indeed named Jack Trice Stadium. Just a little trivia, the stadium at uh, WVU Morgantown was built, was designed after 
the Jack Trice Stadium. What's not reported in this story is that Trice and many of his his teammates knew that Trice was being intentionally targeted simply because of the color of his skin. In fact, the first play of the game, or second play after the kickoff, uh, resulted in a broken collarbone for Trice. But he told the coaches that he was okay. And he went back into the game knowing that he was being targeted. And eventually, he was taken out of the game by the Minnesota players. Now, I realize that there can be a, you know, a, a variety of reactions to that story. You know, some people would say, well, how tragic, how foolish even that someone, you know, would give their life for something as insignificant as football. Other people would say, uh, you know, when I hear that story, there's a man with, of courage and conviction. I mean, he, he thought it was about his race and his, his family and his self-respect. And other people would say, well, it doesn't matter the cause. There's just something about someone who would give their life for something that they believed in. It speaks of conviction and courage. But when we look at the Bible, we see that it is filled with men and women of conviction and courage. We see that that's the attitude, that's the spirit of so many of God's people who are willing to sacrifice even their life to obey the Lord, to do what he's called them to do. I mean, you can think about Abraham in his old age. And and God tells him to take his only son, Isaac, up on a mountain and, and offer him there as a sacrifice to the Lord. This man has waited most of his life for this, for this child. And yet, he's willing to obey the Lord and, and to offer him up. Of course, we know that God stopped him before he did that and provided a sacrifice in his place. That's pretty amazing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were willing to be thrown into a fire rather than to disobey God and to worship another god. They didn't know if they were going to be delivered or not. But they were willing to be obedient no matter what it cost. Daniel, too, was willing to be thrown into a lion's den rather than stop praying to God. See, and there were all kinds of Old Testament people who were committed to obeying God regardless the cost. So we've studied through the book of Acts. We've seen men like John and Peter who were, they were intimidated. They were confronted. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. They were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, you tell us, who should we obey, God or men? And they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. And of course, as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we see that he repeatedly demonstrated his commitment to obeying God even when it was extremely difficult. He was threatened, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned. And yet none of that 
could deter him from his mission. And now, as we come to to this portion of the book of Acts here in chapter 20 and 21, Paul faces another very difficult mission. He's going to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to face intense persecution. It's going to be very difficult. Now, Paul has a dual purpose in going back to Jerusalem. First of all, remember that um, Paul has been taking an offering from all the Gentile churches throughout Asia Minor and, and Greece to bring relief to the to the poor suffering Christians back in Jerusalem. They're suffering because of a, of a, a massive famine that has occurred. And he wants to bring relief to them. Now, disaster relief is not something that uh, Baptists thought up. Uh, we're just following the pattern of the Apostle Paul. And, and he's going to bring back this relief for these people who are suffering. But Paul has another purpose in this. Because he hopes that in seeing Gentile churches demonstrate their love by giving this generous offering, that it's going to bring about a unity between the Jewish church and the Gentile church, which are so different. So Paul has this incredible mission in mind. It's, it's something he feels that God has called him to. It's going to be difficult, but he's going to obey anyway. And so Jerusalem was a place where his ministry had been misrepresented. It was a place where he was not very popular. It was a place where he knew that he was going to encounter serious opposition. Even so, Paul repeatedly demonstrates that he is willing to obey God when it's difficult. And do you understand that just like Paul, God calls you and me to obey him even when it is extremely difficult? Every Christian knows that there are times when it is difficult to obey God. It's just difficult. There there are three levels that we kind of face that. There's a personal level. There's a relational kind of cultural level. And there's there's a broader kingdom level. Personally, we all struggle sometimes with doing what God wants us to do because we just, there are things we want to do. Our own sinful, selfish desires call out, satisfy me, do this. We know that's not what God wants us to do, but we want to do them. And there are, there are struggles that occur on a relational level out there. Uh, there, there are moral issues in society. Things in which we need to take a stand. I mean, we're, we're dealing with abortion, like homosexuality. Uh, you know, do you bake a cake for uh, a, a cause that you don't agree with? Do you go to the wedding of someone in your family who's a homosexual uh, to appease the family and not cause an uproar? You see, there are all kinds of these difficulties that we face on that, that relational, cultural level. And then there's just that big kingdom level where God calls us to go into the world and to make disciples. And all of it can be extremely difficult at times in our lives. 
So you, you say, well, well how, can I, how can I obey God when it's different? I mean, how can I, how can I do that? Well, I think that that question can be answered by looking at the life of the Apostle Paul as he makes his way to Jerusalem and as he repeatedly demonstrates his willingness to obey God as it, when it's difficult. Paul demonstrates four characteristics that are required to obey God when it's difficult. And first, obeying God when it's difficult requires that you remember your mission. Remember your mission. <clears throat> you say, what was, what was God's mission for Paul? What, what was it that God was calling him to do? Well, Acts chapter 20 <clears throat> shows us that Paul clearly understood his mission. Now, let me just put up a map here and show you where Paul was in Miletus. And circle above that was Ephesus. Paul's on his way back right now to Jerusalem. And he stops in Miletus and he calls the elders of Ephesus to himself. And he calls them to remember with him his time with them. And he said, and it says in verse 18 of chapter 20, he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now get this, from the first day and for the whole time that I was serving the Lord, it was difficult. Because there were trials and there were tears and there were plots. It was difficult. And you remember that with me. But despite that difficulty, Paul is being faithful to obey the Lord. And it says in verse 22, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. I'm bound by the Spirit. In other words, he's saying, I believe with everything in me that this is what God is calling me to do. I believe I'm being obedient to the Lord in this. And at this point... It's as though Paul anticipates the question that kind of wells up within all of us. Paul, how can you do that? I mean, if you know that this is what's going to happen, how can you go there knowing you're facing affliction? How can you do that? Well, he says this in verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Now notice very carefully the the value judgment there. Paul sets his life, his personal life, his own desires over against the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus. And the question is, well, which one is more valuable? And he says, it's the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. That's the one that really matters. How can he say that? Simply because, see, this life of Paul is a temporal life. 
But the ministry that he has received from the Lord Jesus, well, that is eternal. That is eternal value. And Paul says, which one? You can't compare the two. It's like when Jesus says, you know, for what shall a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You you can't compare temporal things to eternal things in value. It's it's just it's just not possible. And Paul says, I'm willing to sacrifice this temporal life to accomplish the things that have eternal value, namely the souls of people. See, Paul here is talking mainly, primarily right now, in terms of this kingdom mission. But that kingdom mission can't happen unless you've already come to that personal mission. Of what's the personal commission? Of setting aside your life. See, the first sacrifice you have to make is your own life. You have to lose your life. You have to come to the cross. You have to die before you can ever do any of this. And so here he's saying it's a value judgment. I I lose my life. I count all things loss. And then when Paul's faced with difficulty... You see, he remembered his mission. As we come to chapter 21, we see Paul then now faithfully obeying the Lord, carrying it out, actually doing it. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. When we had parted from them and then had set sail, we ran straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Now we'll look at the map here one more time and you just kind of see where they've been. He left Miletus, they went to Kos, to Rhodes, to Patera, and then they get on a bigger ship, sail all the way across the Mediterranean to Palestine, what he calls Phoenicia, and they land here at Tyre. So he's on the right the landmass right now. He's almost all the way back. And listen, all of this traveling shows us that Paul had some specific objectives in carrying out his mission. See, that his mission is, in one sense, is very broad and general. And it's one thing to know, you know, we've got this, our mission, we're supposed to reach the world for Christ. Well, that's one thing. But it's another thing to talk about it in a very specific way. When you start talking about your spouse, your child, someone in your family, someone you work with, that's another thing. So we need specific objectives if we're going to reach these goals that God calls us to. And you see, when you look at that map, every one of those cities, that's a specific objective. He had a plan. A goal, he's carrying it out. Let me ask you this. Do you understand your mission? Do you know your mission? What about your personal mission? What's your personal mission? Well, we could, we could say it in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of scriptures, but let's stick to Paul since we're looking at his life. In Philippians chapter 3, In verse 8, Paul says, I count all things loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Personally, your mission, your goal is to know Christ, to know him. And he continues in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Again, friend, the first sacrifice we have to make is our own life. And we have to count everything else loss and see that there's something of far greater value than anything that we could ever attain in this world in our own desires, and that is Christ himself, to know Christ, to have that personal relationship with him where you can walk with him in obedience and enjoy that relationship with him. Friends, there is nothing greater in the world than God himself, than Jesus Christ. And then, when it, and then you have, a, you have a, a cultural, a relational kind of permission, and that's... Paul says over and over and over in his letters to walk worthy of the gospel, to live a holy life, to be consistent with the nature and the character of this God that you know, or as Jesus would put it, your your goal in the culture is to be salt and light, to be an influence and be a, a light, a revelation to the world. But then there's that kingdom goal, that broader, big goal, we call it a great mission. No, actually we call it a great co-mission because it's a mission that God has given all of us believers together to do with Christ. The co-mission, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, guess what happens? I am with you. It's a co-mission. Always, even to the end of the age. That, that's our mission. It's, it's very broad, but it's a great mission. Now, notice that that mission doesn't give us any specific objectives. Right? Um, and again, let me just say, when we look at that map, Paul had many specific objectives. This city, I'm going to this city, I'm going to this city, I'm going to this place, I'm going to do that. I'm going to Jerusalem for this purpose. He had very specific objectives. And in every one of those, his objective was to solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever people would respond in faith, what he says, well, then I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I didn't stop teaching you from house to house and publicly. And he, and as Jesus would say, I didn't, I baptized you when you need to be baptized. I taught you everything that Jesus commanded that you needed to know. I had that specific, I had that general command, but then I put it to work in very specific ways. And that's what we all got to do. And listen, it's when you get specific that things get difficult. That's when it gets hard. It doesn't matter that we got a plaque on the wall that says, you know, go and make disciples. It's when you go to a specific place to make a disciple. Then things get difficult. You ever watch HGTV? 
And they have shows like, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines and the Property Brothers. And, you know, they're going to remodel, remake a house, redesign it and everything. And, well, they usually come up with these plans and they'll have a little computer, you know, model that shows you kind of what it's going to look like. And they got their little plans. Well, that's the big picture. That's what we want. But those, those plans are full of specific objectives. You know, we're going to take out this wall. We're going to move that door here. We're going to uh, rearrange these steps. We're going to, uh, you know, take and change that flooring. We're going to do all these things, very specific. The plan's not a problem until you get to the specifics. When you start taking out that wall and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, that wall's holding up the house. We've got to have a beam, this huge beam that's going to cost a lot of money and stick across there and open that up. Well, it's got plumbing in there. You've got to change the whole plumbing system. Now it's going to cost a lot more. Now it's going to take a lot longer. Things get difficult when you get to the specifics. It's great to say we're going to go reach the world, but man, when you talk about reaching Joe, oh, that's really difficult. Isn't it amazing? It's easier to reach the world than it is to reach Joe. And when we get uh, to somebody like Noah, how how do you keep going when things get difficult? You, You remember the mission. You remember the value. You remember the aesthetics. You remember the benefits of the mission. See, Noah was given this uh, big plan, build an ark. I'm, thought, I'm sure he thought that was wonderful, that he and his family were going to be saved and to take two of every animal. That was a wonderful plan. But then when it got specific, when he realized that every day for the next 120 years he's going to be working on that boat, that's a different story. And I'm sure he must have had incredible opposition. And it must have been incredibly difficult many times. I'm sure he thought about quitting. Couldn't count how many times he thought about quitting. How'd he keep going? The end product. The mission. Saving the family. Saving the future of the earth. You remember the mission. Remember the mission. And then, uh, obeying God when it's difficult, requires that you refuse to be dissuaded. Refuse to be dissuaded. See, Paul and his companions, companions, they made it all the way across the Mediterranean to Palestine. And now they're in Tyre. They're waiting for the ship to unload its cargo. And it says in verse 4 that after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Now, the first thing they do when they get to Tyre is they look up the believers in the church there, and they stay with them for seven days. And you remember, Paul had not established this church. This church had been established as a result of the persecution, the, flee, the believers fleeing the persecution at the time of the stoning of Stephen. And uh, a, a persecution, ironically, that was led by the Apostle Paul himself. Now, isn't this an amazing thing? Here's the Apostle Paul meeting with a church whom he had previously persecuted. Now, 
these Christians, they quickly developed a love for Paul and they feared for his well-being and they began to try to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. It says in uh, that, that in verse 4, and you see some people have now, some people have read verse 4 and they have concluded by reading that, that the Holy Spirit was instructing Paul by these believers, don't go to Jerusalem. But it's evident from several considerations that that was not the case. Paul was not being disobedient in going to Jerusalem. First, in, in Tyre, as in so many other places, Paul is saying that everywhere I go, every city that I go to, what do I hear? I hear uh, the people saying through the Holy Spirit, don't, don't, go to, don't go to Jerusalem because this is difficult. You're going to face this. There's going to be hard things happening. Now, he's not saying that the Holy Spirit is saying don't go, but when the people understand what the Holy Spirit is saying about what's going to happen when he gets there, they're saying, please don't go. Just don't go. Now, it's easy, isn't it, when we face a difficult mission to listen to those people that care about us, that love us, that are around us, to say, what are you doing? This is crazy. Don't go do that. Don't go to the mission field. You don't have any, I mean, gosh, you don't even have Netflix over there. I mean, gosh, how can you stand it? You know, we, 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 and I remember when I went in, I was going to the ministry. People look at me like I'm an idiot. You're going to leave your job and go off to seminary? You could be one of those people on the video that needs money? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. It's very, people want to dissuade us. From sometimes from doing what God calls us to do. There may be well-meaning, but they can do that. And, and when the believers there, they saw, they heard the Holy Spirit saying, man, it's going to be bad. I said, Paul, please don't go. But you know what Paul described his mission? He says, it's a mission. It's a ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Now listen, how could the Holy Spirit be telling Paul to do something different than what the Lord Jesus told him to do? That'd be inconsistent. That doesn't happen. Our God is holy, holy, holy. He's God in three persons, and he's always consistent with himself. And second, Paul lived a life sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, when Paul was on his, one of his missions, and he was getting ready to go one area, and the Holy Spirit said, don't go over there and preach. Paul turned around, he went another way. And then when the Holy Spirit said, well, go over to Macedonia, Paul immediately went over to Macedonia. He had a lifelong record of simply following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And third, the Holy Spirit warned Paul of what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem to prepare him, not to prevent him from going. You know, it's interesting that in many ways, Luke describes Paul's trip to Jerusalem uh, in a parallel to the way in which he describes Jesus going to Jerusalem to die. You remember there, were a, there was a plot of the Jews to kill Jesus. And Jesus is telling his disciples, when I get there, I'm going to be handed over to the leaders. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to suffer many things. What did they say? No, Lord, hey, no, we don't want that. No, no, never that. And they tried to dissuade him. But Jesus was resolved to be obedient to the Father, even though he knew it was going to be hard. And when Jesus got into the Garden of Gethsemane, do you think he didn't know what was coming? He absolutely knew what was coming. And, and he even is 
pleading with the Lord, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will. You see, the first thing you have to do, you have to die to yourself. And then you take on the mission that the Lord has given you. And here he is. He's saying, we're going to obey the Lord. I'm going to obey the Lord. And he's telling his disciples, now listen, you need to be ready. But they weren't listening. And when when the, the temptation came, they failed because they were not prepared. They hadn't heard the warning. Jesus heard the warning. Paul heard the warning. Why? Because God was using that to prepare them. When you face something difficult, when you go to the doctor, do you want them to tell you the flattering thing, the easy thing, or do you want to tell them the truth? You want them to tell you the truth, what you're really facing. If they tell you the truth, then you can prepare for it. You're not surprised. You're not shocked. Soon after uh, the beginning of the reign of Bloody Mary in uh, in England, officers began to be dispatched to bring certain preachers to London for trial. And one officer was sent to bring a godly preacher by the name of Hugh Latimer to London. Latimer had six hours' notice that they were coming. And his family and, and people in his church began to encourage him to flee, to go hide. But he wouldn't. He just packed. And he knew that going to London could possibly result in his execution. And when the officer arrived to take him, here's what Latimer said. He said, my friend, come in. You're welcome. I go as willingly to London to give an account of my faith as ever I went to any place in the world. And I doubt not that as the Lord has made me worthy formally to preach to two excellent princes, he will now enable me to bear witness to the truth before the third, either to her eternal comfort or discomfort. And sure enough, Latimer uh, was to her eternal discomfort. And after, soon after he arrived, Bloody Mary had him, along with two other uh, preachers, executed, burned at the stake. And as the flames were leaping up around him, Latimer said, We shall light a candle in England today that shall never go out. That was the costliest fire that the Roman Catholic Church ever lit because it became a flame that ignited the English Reformation and the death of Catholicism in England. Latimer was a man who remembered his mission and he would not be dissuaded. He had the courage to face the flames knowing, believing that God would use that sacrifice of his life to accomplish his purposes. Whether he could see it or not, he obeyed God when it was difficult. And see, and Paul likewise, he will not be dissuaded from his mission. He's not going to be dissuaded by the threats of persecution. He's not going to be dissuaded by the pleadings of well-meaning loved ones. He's going to be obedient to the Lord. He remembers his mission. And it says in verse 5, When our days there were ended, 
that is the ship had finished unloading the cargo and they were ready to sail. He said, we left and started on our journey. <clears throat> While they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the, the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home again. It was wonderful. It was sweet. But Paul didn't allow that positive experience there to to hold him, to keep him from going on about his mission. And number three, obeying God when it's difficult requires that you resolve to pay any price. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Potalamus, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And Paul never wasted any opportunity. I mean, he arrives at this port and first thing he does, is he goes, looks up the, the believers. He's going to spend some time with them and encourage them. And then uh, it says on verse eight, the next day we left and came to Caesarea <clears throat> and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Again, we, I think I have a map here. Uh, maybe I have a map. I think I do. Okay. They sailed. You can see they sailed from Tyre, uh, to Ptolemus, uh, to Caesarea. They're, this is the port of Jerusalem. And they're, they're not very far now from uh, Jerusalem. And this is not, this was the, uh, Caesarea was the home or the seat of the Roman government. This is where the governors stayed. And, and the Jews said they almost uh, excommunicated Caesarea because of that. But it was the port of, of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was also the home of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of those seven faithful men that was chosen by the early church to take care of the needs of the, the widows. And God honored his faithful service, and, and Philip became an evangelist. He was the one, you remember, who preached in Samaria and the cities in that area and saw many people, many of the Samaritans come to Christ and saw the Holy Spirit uh, come upon them just like he had upon the Jews. Philip's the only person in the book of Acts that's given the title evangelist. So he's a unique man. And again, think about it. Uh, Many years earlier, Paul had been a bitter enemy of Philip. I mean, he was the one who was persecuting him. And yet here now, here's Paul staying in the house of this man. What God can do, how he can change things. In verse 9, it says, Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now, interestingly, Luke doesn't tell us anything that these prophecies prophesied. They don't say anything. Didn't tell us any of their uh, influence or anything. I mean, and so the question always comes, you know, well, why does Paul even, I mean, why does Luke even mention them? Well, uh, one of the things that I would say is that many uh, scholars believe that they became a source reference for Luke in the writing of his gospel and the book of Acts. I mean, uh, you see, Luke wasn't there when her father, their father, Philip, was preaching in Samaria. I mean, where did that information come from? And so this is what's believed that they may have had, you know, been a source for uh, the writing of these books uh, set apart by God, these, uh, these young women. Now, whatever the nature of their ministry uh, they didn't say anything about Paul on this occasion. Another prophet is left to do that. 
And in verse, in verse 10 of chapter 21, it says, As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the, the Gentiles. Now, Agabus comes and he, he's acting out this prophecy, graphically portraying what's going to happen. He takes Paul's belt from his garment and he begins to tie up his feet and his hands and he says, man, and he explains it. This is what's going to happen. To whoever goes to Jerusalem, this man, he's going to experience conflict, persecution, affliction when he goes to Jerusalem. Well, when, when they all hear that, Luke, all the companions with, with Paul and all the Christians at Caesarea, they begin to implore Paul, don't go. Don't go. They're begging him. Please don't do this. Now, again, they're trying to dissuade him. And, and can you imagine how difficult that must have been to be able to, have to stand against all your people that care about you and your, even your own fear? But you see, Paul was resolved that he was going to accept whatever consequences came with obeying God. And it, and it says in verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? This is tearing me up. But I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm willing to pay any price, including my own life. And that's obeying God when it's difficult. And... When he heard the prophecy of Agabus, it must have done something inside. When you hear about the the potential of your own death, I don't care where it is, it does something to you. There's something that makes you weak inside. There's something that makes you tremble. It could be a scary thing. And Paul says, man, this is hard enough. This is hard enough just knowing what's going to happen. But, man, I need your support. I need your encouragement. Face this. Please don't do this. You know, there's a kind of a photograph that went viral for a long time. It was, it pictured a group of men Christians kneeling on a beach in orange jumpsuits and men standing around them in black and and hoods with large swords. And these men were Christians and they were being asked to deny Jesus as their Lord. And if they did not, they would be beheaded. We know now that all of those men were indeed beheaded because they refused to deny Jesus Christ. Friends, that's hard. That's obeying God when it's, when it's difficult. They resolved to pay any price. 
In verse 14, it says, and since the, he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now, friends, that's just not some fatalistic resignation. But that's a confident trust in the sovereign God and his perfect will. They committed Paul into the care of the Lord. And I want to tell you, friends, that's all we can ever do, isn't it? We're not in control of the circumstances. All we can do is commit our lives into God's hands and say, God, I'm being obedient and I just trust my life with you. We can't, we can't manipulate God and we can't make it come out the way we want it to. All we can do is determine, resolve to obey and to be willing to pay whatever price and just trust our lives into the hands of God. And finally... Obeying God when it's difficult reassures others. It says in verse 15, after these days, we got ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manson of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Now, I want you to get this. This is important. Despite their fears and all they've heard, it says some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with Paul and his party. Instead of their fears infecting him, his courage is motivating them. They're going to go with him now to Jerusalem knowing he's a marked man, he's being targeted, and they're willing to go now with him. When people stand for the Lord, when it's difficult you reassure, you encourage, you motivate other people. Your example matters in the world. And I would encourage you, you know, trust the Lord in that and be an example to people around you. The Civil War of Antietam was one of the bloodiest uh, days in American military history. On that day, September 1862, nearly 6,000 Union and Confederate troops were killed and 17,000 others were wounded. Now, to put that in perspective, James McPherson says the, the casualties at, at Antietam numbered four times the total suffered by American soldiers at the Normandy beaches on June 6, 1944. More than twice as many Americans lost their lives in one day at Antietam as fell in combat in the War of 1812, the Mexican War, and the Spanish War combined. And historian Bruce Carlson says, Some Union soldiers, their ranks decimated by heavy Confederate fire, fled toward the rear in wild panic, only to be stopped by the contagious courage of one man. The Pennsylvanians broke and ran again to be stopped incomprehensibly a few yards in the rear by a boyish private who stood on a hill and kept swinging his hat, shouting, Rally, boys, rally! Die like men! Don't run like dogs! Strangely, on that desperate field where men were madly heroic and full of abject panic by turns, this lone private stopped the retreat. End quote. That long private stood there saying, don't run, boys. On the bloodiest day 
in American history. There's no doubt that obeying God can be difficult. I don't know what difficulty you're facing in in obeying God right now. You know, it might be on a very personal level, a relational level. It might have to do with some specific thing that you are struggling with, some sin in your life. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a battle that is raging within you and it just seems to just overwhelm you. It seems so difficult. In fact, you've just almost resolved yourself to, to say, I, I can't, I can never be obedient to God in this area. It may, may, may be on a relational level, a cultural level, a decision that you've got to make that's very difficult to take a stand on that alienates you maybe from your own family, people you love, that that has the potential of being an explosion in your life, in your family. It may be on a, you know, maybe on that kingdom level. You know, maybe, maybe you're struggling with what God's calling you to. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field. Maybe God's calling you to the ministry. Maybe God's calling you to be involved in a ministry. I don't know. It can be extremely difficult. But you see, when you face that, what do you do? You need to remember your mission. You you need to, to refuse to be dissuaded from what you really believe that God wants you to do. And you need to resolve to pay whatever price is required to accomplish that. Listen, when you do that, you can be guaranteed that you will reassure others who are looking and struggling, waiting to follow. You can do that. I want to ask you, if you would, just to, to bow your heads. Close your eyes.